Welcome to the Garbage Pod. One pod, one load of garbage. 29 and 28. I've remanded in custody. There's something curious about this broadcast. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 37 of the Garbage Pod. This episode is going to be a blast because I've not only got one, but two guest co-hosts. Firstly, if you're a regular listener to the show, this person's voice might be familiar to you because not only has he voiced some of our stings and jingles, uh, he also pre-recorded segments for our Acceptable in the 80s podcast, which I think was in episode 13. So making his debut in the podosphere, all the way from down under, is Lloyd Bailey. How are you doing, sir? Oh, g'day, g'day. I'm all right. How's you? Yeah, fantastic. I mean, the weather's good, so uh, that's all I need. Um, so, you're a podcaster yourself, aren't you, Lloyd? Well, I am, but I've been a bit lax lately, but I do do my daily, um, I was going to say vlog then, but it's just an audio log, so that would be an A-log. But I do do that, but I do like to do the comedy shows, and I haven't been in the studio here for a little while, actually. It's had some boxes and such in there. Um, so I had to dust off the equipment and, um, you know, reconnect a few things and do a bit of messing about with it uh, tonight to to get online. But yes, I, I need to get back into it because I had a lot of fun doing my own comedy podcasts, yeah. Yeah, Bailey's Banter was a, an interesting mix of uh, bits and pieces, really, because you had, um, you had news, you had um, bits and pieces from uh, people that had been sent in, and you also did, um, like, um, little radio plays, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I started off doing um, some... Uh, I, I just... I said down and wrote this private detective series called, um, oh hell, uh, Tony Benucci, private detective, played in all the sound effects and the music and did the voice and all that sort of thing. And I had a lot of fun. And then I got to the end and I went, oh crumbs, how am I going to do this? And it took me so long to figure out an end. It's never had an end. I should just, it's written down, it's scripted out, but I never got around to recording it. So I probably should... Um, should just do it and finish it and then and write the whole series. Next time I do something like that, write and record the whole thing before I actually unleash it on the public. But I did very well up until that last episode where it all had to sort of tie together. Because Tony Bonucci was a, a typical uh, Italian-American gumshoe, wasn't he? He was a... Yeah. Uh, he was like, um, you know, the, the, the desk with the, the banker's lamp and the hat on the, the hat and coat stand and the dim and the smoke-filled room and, you know, it's, he's sitting there solving cases. He's got his secretary out there with the blonde wig filing and nails. Very, very, you know, cliche sort of set-up stuff. But it, the, the comedy in it was very kind of like... Um, uh, a man walked into a bar kind of thing, wasn't it? It was... Yeah, because I wanted it, wanted to aim... What I try to do is, with all my shows, I aim them at everybody, so there's something for everyone in them. You can have serious rants and complaints about this, that and the other, but when you've got something, there's a little bit of something for everyone. It, it, it got slightly suggestive every so often, but it was never... Never pure filth, if you know what I mean. It was, but it was, it was double entendre. Yeah, it, it reminded me of the the old um, 
Kenny Everett uh, sketches that he used to do, the Captain Crenham and uh, oh, yeah. Rock Salmon. Uh, I think it was they, a They detective. went a bit further than I went, but oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have the... Um, the um, what was the band? The group of females that he had, the dancers. Um, um, was it Hot Gossip? That's it, Hot Gossip. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't got those. And if I did, I wouldn't be doing bloody podcasts here at night with you. I'd be, I'd be busy. Let's put it that. <laughs> so uh, also on the on the podcast, you had a, another character who, who who made an appearance and was quite annoying sometimes, wasn't she? Oh, the cleaning lady, Gladys. Yes, she's, she'll, she'll she'll be around. She's still she's on holidays at the moment, but she'll come back in. And she had all sorts. It was very sort of Monty Python, Pepper Pot sort of. Um, uh, you know, she'd come in and say, I don't love how you're going and all that sort of. You know, it was but, but she just had no idea. And I I had it as she was an annoyance. It, it'd be something to break up the podcast a bit. Um, in the middle of something, but I always had to have a sketch for her. She always had to do something or say something stupid, or and and she did. And normally, I would just ad lib it as I was sitting here. Of course, I had to have the banging on the door and the the vacuum cleaner sound effect ready. Um, but that was I do all my own sound effects where I can. Um, so that was a lot of fun, and I did have fun doing that. I got caught one day because I pushed the door open and went. And the, and the fella next door was looking at me through the window. And, uh, yeah, I, I, got, I got caught out. But he knows. I told him what I do. I said, it's just a bit of madcap stuff. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And I do miss doing it. But I just, I don't know. I, I sort of lost my mojo there for a bit, uh, if you like. So I, I, I need to get stuck back into it again because I did have a lot of fun. And um, away from the podcast, you do um, some quite vital um, volunteer work, don't you? Well, yes, I volunteer for the RFS, which is the Rural Fire Service here in Australia. And um, I'm, I'm on uh, part of my duties. I can, I can go as far as I want. I can, you know, rise up the ranks um, to be able to go out on the fire ground and actually fight fires with hoses and tankers and things like that. But I've sort of um, remained mid-level, so it doesn't quite allow me to go out. It wouldn't take me much to qualify to go out, but most of the work I do is going up the fire tower and um, using the radios and maps and spotting things and smoke sightings and what have you. And, um, you know, we we sort of go up there for a two-hour shift and um, then we have a shift change and another lot of people come up for another two hours and we just sit up there and, and scan the horizons and any smoke sightings we see, we... Uh, plot out on the map and then radio into fire control and um well they do the rest but the the work that you guys do i mean in recent years is uh have been you know it's it's really really been important because i mean you've been fairly lucky i mean because you're not in the areas where uh a lot of the, the big fires have been but um i i actually am um <laughs> we had one here in 2002 that nearly wiped us out and if it wasn't for the fireys, the RFS and the New South Wales Fire Brigade, let's not forget them. They're, they're actually, um, uh, you know, another part of everything. We sort of work together. Um, and if it wasn't for them, we would have been in serious trouble. Um, I could see the potential for a lot more devastation. There were a few homes lost around this area because I'm right next to the bush. And um, that was the reason I joined. I thought, gee, if we didn't have these guys... 
we would have been in serious trouble. So what can I do? I mean, I run my own business. I can afford to give back to the community. I can, you know, take a couple of hours off every, uh, you know, few weeks or what have you to do my bit. What can I sort of do to um, to help out? And and that's how I joined. That's amazing. It really is. Also on today's show is someone who had a lot of involvement in the garbage pod over the last 18 months, both on and off the microphone. It's Alan Taylor-Shearer. How are you doing, fella? Ah, very well indeed. Good afternoon, evening, morning, and good night. Yeah, I'm doing very well. How are, how are we both? Yeah, great. Splendid. I'm splendid. fine. Good to hear from you, Lloyd, and uh, that's yeah, fantastic, work. fantastic work you're doing. Very important that people... Uh, like yourself, take notice and get out there and actually do something about these things rather than just sitting around in talking shops. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. But I just I just had this profound... Because I watched this thing for... I think I stood out the front, not continuously, but most of the time for about three days and watched it jump ridges. And they said it'll never jump the river, and I knew it would because you've got embers blowing in the wind that go straight across the river and ignite the rest... And it got within about, um, I'd say, 300, 400 metres of us, and that was pretty scary. And I thought, these guys are pretty good, and I really, whatever I can do to help out, I can devote a bit of time and do it, because it was, you know, without them, we would have been in serious strife. Yeah, fantastic. It's, it's, it's something that everybody needs to take on board, that, you know, it's these things that impact our communities need to be... Uh, need to have practical solutions and the only way we can have those practical solutions is if people actually switch the telly off um, get out the front doors and actually get involved yeah I agree totally brilliant nice one Lloyd thank you now Alan uh, a lot has changed with what you do um, since the last time you were on the show which was back in February last year blimey um, uh, you're, you're the host of uh, 1800 online but that's um, expanded shall we say since uh, since then hasn't it just it's it's organically grown it's become a network of shows presenters and other uh, podcasts and radio stations 1800 online in its first manifestation was uh, a show on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 6 o'clock hence the 18 and it was all online so that's where the name came from uh, it then became and it was just uh, a podcast and then it became uh, a live broadcast and uh, and podcast and then it's been rebroadcast 24-7 on its own website and uh, Spamhead Productions and, uh, and the Garbage Pod have featured heavily in that um, the development of the website and also the inclusion now of presenters from not just around the UK but from the US and uh, other far-flung places of the Empire and uh, it's now joining forces as a network with uh, at least three other internet radio networks and uh, we are simulcasting live and pre-recorded shows i'm starting a daily show on monday the of may and that will be running at six o'clock uk time every day from monday starting off with a music show because i do a music show on yet another network um, and that's coming along into the uh, four network conglomeration 
And then Tuesdays to Fridays, it's all talk. It's two hours of talk radio, as it should be, with people coming in to the studio, calling in on Skype, people getting involved uh, over the phone. It's becoming a fully-fledged um, radio show that's going to be broadcast every day. Um, and the listenership is potentially huge. I mean, it's big now because of the joining of the networks together. Um, we all broadcast each other's shows. Um, all the live shows go out on all the networks simultaneously. Um, and then we split away and do our own thing for the pre-recorded shows. Um, like we carry the garbage pod on 1800 online. You can listen to that uh, in the 24-7 rebroadcast. But then we tend to find that on the hour, things might cut and then go to the live broadcast from let's say one of the networks is called Shaziz and uh, the chap that runs that is based in Texas he's a scientist he's searching for that elusive free energy and let's just say he's not far off but he will uh, he explains that and goes into a lot more detail than I can because I'm no scientist um, but that's just one of the networks that we're involved with and his listenership is huge it's absolutely massive he's built it up over a number of years and we are now a part of his network he's a part of our network the whole idea is that we join together there's no competition uh, we're not trying to poach listeners from other networks and bring everybody to, you know, bring everybody to our station because we're better than you and we tell the truth more or we have better music and better entertainment. It's all working collaboratively. We've got four networks on different continents, all working together, all rebroadcasting. Um, we've now got a couple of presenters from down in Australia who get involved and there's a New Zealand chap and uh, South Africans um, we haven't got anybody from the middle or far east yet broadcasting but I'm sure that will come and the main thing is that we just want to talk about our own different per points of view, our personal opinions on world topics world news, health medical stuff you know, growing your own food planting um, medicine herbs not the illegal ones uh, but uh, think you know planting your own herb garden that could be used for medicinal uh, purposes and that kind of stuff and everything in between um, and uh, I mean lots of people come along and talk about their experiences with spiritualism and making sure all your chakras are lined up with your ley lines that run or whatever it is that run through your body i don't understand it all um, i don't get it all but it's their opinions it's their views and it's their opportunity to get on and talk about it because the main thing that we do is give people an opportunity to experience new ideas and new concepts and then pick and choose and find the ones that are right for them. It really is about uh, audience intelligence, audience selection, and allowing people to dip in and out and pick the bits that are right for them. Now, the 1800 Network is, is, is currently featuring in a theatre programme, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Uh, there's a theatre company uh, in Kings Lynn, which is in North Norfolk, where I'm uh, where I'm currently based. Um, I'm not from Norfolk. That's not my original place of birth, but this is where I ended up. And uh, the theatre company are running for the next year. All their productions uh, will be featuring an advertisement. 
uh, a full-page program advertisement which shows off the 1800 online network. It talks about the shows, the different presenters, and uh, where they're from, and really opens up to the local community the fact that there are people out there who are who are thinking the same as them, who want the same as them. Hopefully, bringing them just outside their community to uh, to see that it's not just them that have issues or have great ideas, whatever. Um, and we hope that these people will come along and maybe get a, a wider, broader perspective. And this theatre company are very kindly taking uh, our, our full-page ad and uh, the garbage pods in there and uh, Paula from Florida, her music is in there and her, her talk show as well. All this stuff is featured and once again, it's the coming together of loads of different people and loads of different networks and ideas all in one page. Which is absolutely fantastic. Now, on the garbage pod we've, we've got some ideas that um, we are trying to uh, bring into fruition as it were and I don't know if any of the listeners out there have actually seen it but there's a poll in the blog section um, of the website about the future of the garbage pod i might actually put a link to just the poll itself on the show notes for this episode actually yeah so we we really value your input i mean there's, there's the poll but you can leave comments as well uh, on how you think it should go i won't say any more than that because basically it's self-explanatory once you get there really (laughs) so shall we crack on with this show then yeah let's crack on why not (laughs) this is the bbc home service here is the news Well, that music only means one thing. As you know, on board the Garbage Pod, we like to delve into the interweb and find unusual news stories and factoids from around the globe and ask our guests whether they have anything to throw into the mix. Um, Has anybody got something they want to uh, start off with? Uh, This is a story um, about education. Um, and uh, what's weird and wonderful about education? Well, this one is uh, a woman of 31 is arrested after posing as a high school student of 15. It's thought Charity Johnson spent more than six months attending lessons at a Texas high school, despite being more than twice the age of her classmates. Why on earth would you do that? And how did she manage to get away with it for six months? <laughs> Well, how did she pull that off? She must look. <laughs> she must look really good for her age. Charity <laughs> yeah. Johnson, thirty-one, enrolled in New Life Christian School at Longview, Texas, last October, with ID to say that she was fifteen years old. She claimed to be Charity Stevens, with a birth date of November twenty-fourth, nineteen ninety-seven. She told officials that she had previously been homeschooled and had no prior transcripts, but she was rumbled after a woman who took her in believing she was a vulnerable teenager became suspicious. Tamika Lincoln said she took Johnson to enroll at the school after meeting her in March 2013 when claiming to be an orphan from an abusive household. Miss Lincoln told KLTV, I sympathised with her and invited her into my home. I took her in as a child, did her hair, got her clothes and shoes. Miss Lincoln became Johnson's guardian but began to doubt her story and alerted the police who arrested her. She's been charged with failure to identify and give false information. 
the school said a letter would be sent home with other students to explain the situation, but declined to comment further. Now, to look at this young, old lady, this photograph's not very good, but I certainly wouldn't take her for 15. Blimey. It, it does make you wonder why she did it. Yes, and how? And like you say, how did she pull that off for six months? I mean, surely the, the system should have found out earlier than that. <laughs> you would have I mean, hoped so. Development, development, female development would, would sort of dictate... I'm sure that she... Well, she might be... I suppose we can't really do that. I suppose she might be quite flat-chested or something like that, but... Yeah, and some 15-year-olds are rather well-developed, let's be honest. But facial features, surely, and the fact that she smoked her 20 a day and rolled her own, you know. <laughs> how does this work? I mean, who would, who would, seriously, who would fall for that? I can't believe that's That's amazing. It is. I, I, it's Texas. <laughs> I, I, I know when the, the original Beverly Hills 90210 show was out on the TV, um, they were playing teenagers, and I know a lot of the characters in that were a lot older than the characters that they portrayed in the show. Yeah, but there's makeup for that and studios and all that sort of thing. You know, they, they, they do some extremely good makeup, but unless she was some sort of makeup artist, I guess, I'd, I'd you know, put well, on with a trowel. You can see for yourself, guys, because here's the link. I'm putting that in the uh, in the connection there in the chat box. Right. So, so have I'll, a quick look at that. A link to well, not a link to that. I will put the photograph up in the in the show notes so everyone can have a look at this. Yeah. Oh, it's just ridiculous. I just <laughs> don't understand that they. Yeah. yeah. How a whole school could be taken in like that is amazing. Yeah, well, it, it must be the dumbest school. In, well, anyway, that's not that's possible. Well, so I, I think even I, I mean, we always slate the education system in the UK, but I don't even think that we would fall for that one. No, no. <laughs> I think blind people could tell that she was. They could feel her face and get. No, it's not a fifteen-year-old. <laughs> that's that's there's no excuse for that. It's absolute rubbish. I've got a, uh, a good story that I want to start off with. Um, an innocent celebration turned out chaotic as demonstrators descended on uh, Tucson, Arizona to protest the newly built Arizona Thespian Center. Led by Minnesota Senator Michelle Bachman, make a note of that name, the protesters interrupted the opening ceremony for the 1,200-seat performing arts center by screaming a series of homophobic expletives throwing objects at participants and threatening to burn that building of sin to the ground, or as they would call it, doing God's work. The participants of the ceremony seemed stunned by the attention and tried to get rid of the protesters by pointing out that thespians are just actors. This drew hearty, hearty cheer from Backman, who stated, Exactly, they are pretending to be thespians. There is something mentally wrong with them, but we can help. Backman and her Tea Party volunteers began handing out leaflets for Backman's Pray Away the Gay Clinic and shouted to the crowd, For 99 easy payments of $99.99, you can be healed. You can be cleaned in the eyes of God. Mm. Tensions quickly escalated as the protesters grew louder and angrier as the Thespian Centre's attendees ignored them and began singing Seasons of Love from the musical Rent. 
Ultimately, the police arrived and calmed the situation by removing the incensed Backman. An officer asked why she was there in the first place, as she was a senator from Minnesota and not Arizona. Taking a page from Sarah Palin, she replied, Of course I should be here. Arizona and Minnesota are practically neighbours. I'm not going to wait until this travesty reaches my front door before I act. The officer, <laughs> the officer merely shook his head and mumbled something about needing to take Batman to pray away the stupid facility. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> d- d- uh, despite the turbulent opening ceremony at the Arizona Thespian Center opened to a full house with a rousing performance of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar <laughs> oh they're mad aren't they <laughs> there's notice queer as folk <laughs> no, that's that's very I mean, true. I'm just sitting how, here looking at this. I picture mean, how did this person become a senator? Not knowing the difference between a thespian and a lesbian is is beyond me. <laughs> yes. Well, greetings to all our fellow listeners from the island of Lesbos. I suppose. Good <laughs> thespian. What's wrong with people? Peasants, peasants, peasants. <laughs> And then to, to, to take a leaf out of Sarah Palin's book as well, it's um, uh, <laughs> say no more. It's amazing. <laughs> Crichton, what are you doing, man? Oh, sir, I'm listening to The Garbage Pod. It's a podcast I found in the podosphere. If I may offer this one um, for, for Lloyd, um, I'm a snake owner. I have around 10 snakes. Uh, of different varieties and sizes. And uh, um, this story has uh, been under my nose. Uh, A snake eating an unfortunate kangaroo have brought a cheer to a dinner party in Catherine. Government worker Pravina de Beer was hosting a dinner party at her Arula Road home when some arriving guests told her of the live nature programme on the road outside her home. They said there was a big python trying to eat a kangaroo outside. Uh, and so the 25-year-old and... Uh, the, sorry, the 25 or so guests paused their catch-up, uh, a farewell for a college, and rushed outside to watch the last breath squeezed out of the marsupial by the huge two-metre-long snake. I had some guests from New Zealand on holiday, and they couldn't believe it, said Mrs. De Beer. They were taking photographs. It started eating at 5 p.m. and we went back at 8.45 and they were both gone. Mr. Beer said that Catherine was a hotbed of wildlife activity. There's a lot of kangaroos around here and snakes too, she said. Last year I had a baby goat and a snake ate it under my home. So it had obviously decided to go in the supports and in the basement and just eat a goat. Now, I don't have any snakes that big. But that must have been an amazing thing to see. I just did a quick Google for that while you were talking, and um, I had a, a little look. And of course, the thing just shows a photo and nothing about the actual thing at all. But um, it's it's odd. I mean, the, the article that I'm looking at, if whether it's not the same one, or, or I'm not sure. But it's the fifth of March. It says it was updated, but it's it's odd for it. Usually, when they come out of. Um, uh, hibernation at the end of winter, you know, sort of spring type September-ish, that sort of time, um, then they're extremely hungry, obviously, so they'll sort of tackle anything they can. Mm. Um, small children, slow-moving pensioners, that sort of thing. But <laughs> to eat a kangaroo 
it's a big job. I mean, it, yes, you get small wallabies. It could have been a wallaby. I mean, they they will report it as a kangaroo, but it could have been a wallaby, which is smaller. But to eat a, a kangaroo, that's an that's an enormous task for any. Uh, I guess it's a python. Um, the picture I'm looking at here, I, it 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 looks it, it's difficult to tell the picture that I'm looking at what it is. I don't think it's a diamond python, but. It, I mean, that is a mammoth task. Kangaroos are not a small animal. Um, it could have been a juvenile, I suppose, but um, you know, it, it it could have. It, it, it's it's right. To, it's fair to say it would have taken an enormous amount of time for it to actually consume the animal, and then they don't usually move on terribly quickly afterwards. Because being a snake keeper yourself, I guess you understand that once they've sort of devoured the meal, it has to sort of move through it enough for it to become. Um, ambulatory and, and, and sort of move somewhere nearby to sit there and digest its meal for the next 600 years. But, um, yeah, kangaroo is a fair old uh, meal. That would keep it going for a while. I've, I've, yeah, and fast-moving as well, aren't they? I've just got this image of, whilst it's trying to eat this kangaroo, this snake bouncing across the road. It's... <laughs> Be quite yeah, I think it probably finished it off before it had a mouthful of it. Oh, <laughs> they tend to do that. They, they're not very forgiving that way, snakes. <laughs> no, it's just, just this image is just quite a funny. Oh, you're thinking about the whole kangaroo inside the snake, and then the kangaroo still is still moving around and, and bouncing. Is that? Is that <laughs> that's right? What, yeah, that's what's oh, going He's been watching no. too many Tom and Jerry cartoons. <laughs> No, that, the, the snake would be very, very full and would have to go and find itself somewhere peaceful and quiet and safe to, to then, like you say, spend the next 600 years digesting it. And I mean, yeah. to, to, bring, to bring down uh, a kangaroo with its very powerful tail and very powerful legs uh, and then subdue it and then eat it, that's going to take a heck of a lot of power. And I, and I know it's it's a big effort, are, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I know snakes are pretty much all muscle and incredibly strong, but that's an amazing thing if it's if it's managed it. Uh, I mean, See, the thing is, the large ones aren't the. It, it's the smaller ones, like the red belly black snake and all that sort of thing, that are the most ven- venomous, and the king brown and the you know all that sort of thing. Yeah. But the large ones generally strike and squeeze and strangle, but so do. Uh, and then they eat. The larger ones aren't usually as venomous as the, mm. the smaller ones. There's no way a red-bellied black snake or a, a king brown could tackle a kangaroo. I, don't, I really don't think it would get its um, jaws. I know they're incredibly flexible, but I don't think it would get its jaws around it. But to to actually grab this thing, it, it uh, I, I really can't see how it happened unless the thing was sleeping uh, and it, uh, it, it grabbed might... hold of it and threw its through its loops around it, you it, know. It might, the, the kangaroo might have been hit by a vehicle or something. And uh, Well, that's possible too because the picture I was looking at is on a road, on an yeah. asphalt road. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it, it could have already been dead, I guess. We'll, we'll never know because they don't tell that bit of the story. It's, oh, my God, a cat. A, a cat, yes, a cat. A snake ate a kangaroo. Oh, my God. No, that, that would you be know, a feat. It gets sensationalised around the world. But <laughs> it might have already been dead. It's possible. Yeah, that, that would be a feat. A cat a cat eating a kangaroo would have been yeah, a feat. Yeah, well, okay. I just, I got that. <laughs> it doesn't happen often, but it does happen. There's a society set up for it. So I, I, talking of which... Um, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> 
I, I don't know if you, it's, you... it's the Felines Against Kangaroo Society. <laughs> Donated P.O. Box 314 um, Public Toilets, uh, third cubicle along. <laughs> oh, dear. It's all fun and games until someone gets hurt and then it's called sport. It's, it's, it's all coming back to you now, isn't it, Lloyd? The, 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 the pro- yes, yes. <laughs> I, I founded that society a long time ago. It didn't make me any money, but there you go. <laughs> No, it's 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 a, it's a big thing because, as Alan quite rightly says, I mean, once they have a big meal, they move to they don't go a terrible distance, but they'll go somewhere private and uh, just sit there for some time and digest it. They don't sort of just eat an entire water buffalo and then take off five hundred miles. You know, it's, it's it's an enormous encumbrance upon the animal itself. Uh, to you know, it's it's not just it doesn't instantly digest and turn into fluid. It's not like a spider that just sucks the juice out so to speak but um it it and it takes a big it, it it's actually quite uh from what i understand it, it's it's quite an effort it, it really makes a big difference to the snake when it when it ingests an enormous meal like that it knows that that's it i can't move for quite some time until i finish digesting this Yes, um, and I mean the the snakes I have uh, eat various sizes of rats, and even they have to go and uh, sit in a hide in the vivarium and just stay there, warm, undisturbed for at least forty eight hours whilst they digest the meal. So these small snake snakes taking you know a couple of days to digest, and then this thing. <laughs> with its wallaby is just going to be away for a week. It's like, oh, just oh, leave least. me alone. Just leave me yeah. alone. Don't disturb me. Oh, I could eat another thing. I'm absolutely yeah. stuck. Mr. Creosote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go on. Go on, sir. It's only a wafer thin mint. It's a wafer thin. Have a little rat. I used to know a bloke that used to keep snakes and he used to have this enormous bloody python and he'd, he'd, he had this in his house and we used to visit him every so often. It was sort of a users group meeting. And we used to pop around every so often. And um, we go, where's your snake, Terry? And he said, it should be in the tank, knowing full well it wasn't. And everyone would just freeze. And this, this snake was gone. And he used to um, pull out a, um, when it was there, he used to do his party trick. He went to the chest freezer and he'd pull out a, um, a rat with a paddle pop stick up its backside and uh, he'd feed this to the snake. It was, he, he would call it a ratsicle. Um, so he'd, he'd pull it out of the freezer. I, I can't remember whether he gave it to the snake frozen. Surely that can't be good for the snake, but he must no. have thawed them out. And, and he would give it, feed this snake ratsicles. Anyway, this thing wasn't there one day. So it should be around here somewhere. And we all froze. This thing was a monster. And we fro- and it turned out that it was in a tank out in the back room. He'd moved it from the normal tank it was because it was a talking point when we walked in there. Mm. But um, God, yes, it was it was a bit scary. Um, just to take up a little bit more time, another snake story. And I was only telling this to the fellow in question the other day. I um, one of my um, customers uh, keeps. He's a reptile rescue type person. So if you've got a blue tongue lizard that's been hit by a car or whatever, he'll come and scrape it up and take it back and rehabilitate it and feed it and and then release it back into the bush. And he does this with these enormous um, 
sorry, enormously poisonous snakes too, like the red belly black snake and the king brown and all that sort of thing, because he treats them as, you know, they've been injured, they need to be rehabilitated and released back into the bush, whereas your average person would say just kill it because it's a problem. But um, I went round to his place one day and we w- went inside and he's got tanks all over the place, you know, with the proper lights. And he does, it, he does it the correct way. He cleans them and has the proper substrate and all this sort of thing. Probably like you do, Alan, you take, you know, pride in what you do. And you, if you're going to domesticate an animal, you look after it to the best of your ability. Indeed. And uh, we walked in uh, to the house and he sort of stops by an empty tank and he looks at it and he goes... Hmm. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, there should be a red belly black in that tank. And I just froze on the spot because it's an extremely deadly snake. It's like one bite and you've got a matter of minutes to get to the hospital and anti-venom and, st- you know, it's under half an hour sort of thing. And I stood there and I went, oh, and... He said, oh, no, that's right, I moved it to a tank out the back. Because I'm looking on the floor and thinking, but he's moved it to a tank out the back. And I told him the other day, I said, you'll never know how close you came to giving me heart failure that day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of uh, there's a, a couple in uh, Florida that do a show that we carry called Shake and Wake. And uh, they used to be part of an Alice Cooper tribute act. And they had their own python. And uh, they just used to let it have free run of the house. They didn't have a vivarium of, as such. They uh, they simply just let it have free run. And they would sleep at night. And this thing would climb up on the bed, go under the pillows, curl back round against itself under the pillows, and would stay there through the night. So this couple used to use this python as a pillow as <laughs> as well as part of the Alice Cooper Tribute Act. <laughs> oh, no, I'm afraid I couldn't stretch to that. I, I, you know, it's, just, no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the kind of thing here where we've got um, the um, diamond pythons that we... And I've had one on the driveway and it wouldn't go away and I nearly ran over it one day, so I ran the, um, rang the... Um, the fire brigade and said, are you guys busy? And they said, well, you know, we're on alert and that. And I said, anyone fancy a diamond python? They went, oh, yeah. So they mustn't, mustn't have been terribly busy. Came round and collected it. And they said, oh, that's a big one, isn't it? And it was about six feet long. And it was a, the size of the thickness of your arm. And um, I thought, blimey, that's that's a big thing. But to have that around and, a, and, and he was telling me, you know, if you pick them up, that's fine. But you've got to know what you do. Always pick them up with one hand because if you put both hands and you pick up bits, all it's got to do is throw a loop around your arms and manacle your wrists together and then throw a loop around your neck and that's it. Lights out, Charlie. And I thought, I'd never thought of that. So I'd, I've always thought if I ever do have to pick one up, which I'd rather not, but I, I'm not as frightened of them as I am of spiders. But um, I've got to remember that they could very well constrict you, I guess. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we had... Oh, yeah, definitely. We had a, a, a situation when I lived back at home where um, somebody had some snakes and um, they couldn't really look after them and they just let them loose. Now, they weren't really dangerous snakes. I mean, they were only rat catchers. But um, a, a young child could have a problem with one. 
And um, yeah, I think it was about. It's made up a fair portion of the news, hasn't it? With um, not in in Britain per se, but in in America, with you know they've they've had snakes as pets and they've busted out of the cage. A cage? What am I talking about? You know the uh, serpentarium or whatever you call it, and um, you know gone and found the the, the the small child in the crib and um, you know strangled it. Yeah. I mean, these there was about five or six of them, and they were uh, loose on the the estate where my mum and dad live. And on the estate, yeah, yeah. Oh. And uh, one of them got into one of my mum's neighbour's garden, and and, they, and she's got two young children. Um, and luckily, uh, one of the kids screamed, and the dad came out and <laughs> saw this snake, and he got his. Um, fishing rod rest and you know on a fishing rod rest you've got that v part where the red rod fits mm. into uh, he had this snake pinned He's up pinned against the down. wall with this thing and uh, it made it into the local newspapers they were calling him for some reason they called him crocodile nick even though it was a snake but um <laughs> but oh, yeah God. they the police were called the police didn't know what to do so it was the RSPCA had to get involved and, and whatnot. So. Tell me something, just out of total ignorance, are the snakes in Britain poisonous? Um, yes, some. <laughs> Adders and vipers. And is it a critical get to the hospital within a certain number of minutes type um, thing? Or? No, it's not as bad as that. It it will um, temporarily paralyse you and make it incredibly painful for you until you do get an antidote. Okay, but it's nothing fatal within a certain time period, sort of thing. No. Only if you've got a heart condition. Yeah, well, of course, unless you've got a pre-existing medical condition. You guys are so lucky over there. I was talking to, I think it was Beer Show Jimmy, um, I was talking to him about that, and he said, you know what, when we're out in the garden and we're buggering about and you're know, cutting branches down and mowing lords and doing um, whippersnip, uh, what do you call it, strimming. Strimmer, um, yeah. Um, you know, so we don't have to worry about anything. There's nothing that can, you know, there's just, you know, there's this little spider, it's a tiny little thing, or there's a, uh, you know, there's nothing. Well, we've got ticks and spiders and snakes and all sorts of nasty things. He said, we don't have to worry in the garden. We don't have to put any sort of um, uh, preventative stuff on your skin and all that sort of thing. I mean, I'm sure you get sand flies and midges and yeah. bitey mosquitoes and yeah we do get mosquitoes now so of course skates are everywhere yeah. but um yeah no but you know i've dragged a few ticks out of myself you've been following me long enough to know mark that i've dragged <laughs> a few ticks out of myself and the last one nearly bloody crippled me yeah 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 you had a paralytic one didn't you a paralysis tick yeah <laughs> it wasn't paralytic well it might have been if it had bitten me at night yeah i had a few glasses of wine Excuse me. i'm sorry mark i don't mean to laugh at you I, that's tickled me that has a paralytic tick <laughs> but yes no we 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 do we have the the grass ticks of course and the paral par, i've nearly said it myself then the paralysis ticks, and they—they—I'd never—I've had ticks in me before that I've dug out, no problem at all. And this thing was tiny; it was probably the size of a pinhead, or perhaps just a fraction larger. And I didn't—I I started my whole right side started stiffening up, and I thought, "Blimey, I'll have to go to the physio or the chiropractor or something," you know. And it turned out it was this damn thing, and it took three days for the effects to go away. I don't understand why things that size need that much venom. 
Blimey. It's unbelievable, really. I mean, they must have... I mean, what's it going to do with... It's like ticks in dogs and cats and and beasts, you know, um, cows and sheep and all that sort of thing. What is a tick the size of... I mean, the biggest ones, uh, the size of, a you know, the end of an eyedropper or something. What is it going to do with a whole cow? It can't eat it. So why do you need to kill it? Why don't you just, you could squirt a bit of stuff into it, suck its blood, drop off and bugger off and digest that and go and do your thing. Why do you need to kill the animal? It's got me buggered. I can't work out why they need so much venom for such a small thing. See, I I didn't realise how how dangerous they were until um, you pointed it out on your podcast and um, mm. then I looked it up a little bit more on YouTube and um, do you remember that video that I sent you that, Australia, oh, yes. that Mr. Stripey Head I think he calls himself mm. um, the wrong way to pull a tick out yeah uh, he, he, um, he, he had the tick uh, in his side and he decided to spray it with some kind of aphid spray <laughs> and um, wasn't it 14 wasn't it a fly spray yeah yeah, some kind of fly yeah, spray. And that just annoys them and they squirt more stuff into you. And he wondered why he, at that second, he started, everything started to go grey and he passed out. Yeah, well, there's, there's idiots in every country, Mark. You know this. There's lots of things what you do for ticks. You've got to burn them. You've got to get a burning stick and press it on if it's a horse to get it off, or you do this or do that. The truth is, you get a tick puller, or if you haven't got one, you get a pair of tweezers, grab it as close to the beak as you can and rip the bugger out. You know, and you, you, you just, you don't do it quickly. You just do it a slow and steady pull, and the whole lot comes out. If you leave the head in there, that can cause an infection. But... You know, and you obviously don't squeeze the body because that just squeezes more venom in. It's like taking a bee out. You get the, not a bee, but the bee sting. You get the tweezers under the stinger and pull backwards or you scratch it out with your nail. If you squeeze the bag, it's obviously going to pump more venom into you. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, the... And I can understand why people do it, because the thing is, oh, God, I've been stung by a bee, and they just start swiping at it. And swiping at it, they, your natural reaction is to flick something off you, and it squeezes the bag and snaps the stinger off inside you, and therefore could cause an infection. I mean, it's a, it's a natural reaction. Um, am I right in thinking in, uh, between wasps and, and bees that the bees... Sting is barbed, but the wasp one isn't, or something like that. I couldn't tell you. I, I don't know much about that. Alan, have you got any sort of... Um, uh, well, as I, as I understand it, a wasp can sting you multiple times. So the wasp doesn't have a barb, but the bee, uh, the the aerodynamically challenged bumblebee, has a barb on its sting that if it does sting you, it rips the sting out of its own body as it flies away, mm. um, leaving the, the pulsing uh, venom sac behind, but then the bee goes off and dies. That's right, yeah, because the stinger sac is a vital part of the bee, which just doesn't really make sense, but I guess they're sort of like suicide bees that do their stinging and then that's their job done. Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah. they... But, they, yeah, they, I've never thought about that. I guess they could 
could do it numbers of times. I, I don't think the sting is fatal to them, is it? No. I'm sure that's the case with... with but I, I don't like wasps. And here's a, here's a little tip. If you have wasps and you want to get rid of them, the best thing to do, and this was told to me by another guy in the RFS, and it works like a dream too, I must say, but you've got to make sure you have a clear getaway. <laughs> you have to make sure you have... Don't do this in the laundry and then have to jump over boxes and kids coming in going, what are you doing? And you just plough through them and just blast them out of the way like a bulldozer. But you've got to have a clear getaway. You get a tin of um, go into the kitchen and get your spray oil, you know, the kind that you might spray a, a pan with you oh, know, yes. instead of greasing it with butter. Um, yes. They make this spray oil. What you do is you go up to the nest and you just – unleash a torrent of spray oil onto the nest if there are wasps on it you've got to be a little careful that you saturate them what it does is it glugs them up so they can't fly they're all <laughs> sticky and 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 they can't fly so you hit them with that and then you in the other hand you get your tin of mortine or whatever you have for fly spray insect killer over there or in any country, if you're listening in another country, you grab your, your trusty fly spray stuff. So you hit them with the oil first, then you hit them with the fly spray, and the oil incapacitates them, and the fly spray will kill them. And then you just wait a little while, and you knock the nest off, throw it away, and that's the end of it. Blimey. Yeah, I can see what you're saying about the, the escape route, because if, if you miscue that... Yeah, because if you're a crap them. shot, let's be honest, <laughs> if you're a crap shot and you spray yourself in the face because the thing's down the wrong way, you know, they, they know you're there, they know you've done something, and they say, right, mate, you're for it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how you do it, ladies and gents. Spray oil. Fantastic. I never thought of that. Mm. I've done it multiple times. I've watched the fellow next door trying to knock one off from under his kid's trampoline with a long pole. I said, stop doing that, but he'd already knocked it off by that time and he ran like buggery back into the house. And I said, well, if you'd used the spray oil, you wouldn't have had to run. But you just leave yourself that bit of, you know, if you, if you need to make a quick getaway, you must make sure. It's like saying something nasty to the wife. You've got to make sure you can get out of the house and you've got the car keys in your hand. And it, well, well, I would have the engine running. Yeah, well, the, the engine running and place to and, stay. And, and, and a, friend to, to, uh, a friend to play, uh, um, play defence and, uh, mm. you know, and distraction. Yeah, Possibly that, an airline ticket, you know. That's, that's yeah, defi yeah, definitely a light blue uh, blue touch paper and Stanwell back moment. It's that's um, the one. Yes, <laughs> one of my uh, favourite kinds of stories, and I know it kind of interests you as well, Lloyd. Is um, stories about amazing things that have been developed and constructed using three um, D printers. And, oh yes, yes. Uh, and uh, I've got a couple of these stories. Uh, the, the first one is uh, that. In China, 10 full houses have been printed off by a giant 
3D printer in just 24 hours. Are they using the same sort of medium? Is it that plastic PLA or whatever no, they call it? No, it's a, this Chinese company called Winsun. They print in concrete, do um, they? Use uh, four 10-metre by 6.6-metre printers uh, to hmm. achieve the engineering feat that would leave construction workers out of jobs if it proves But what's successful. the medium that they use? Uh, the printers pump out a spray mixture of cement and construction waste uh, to build walls oh. in layers. The cost was just $5,000 American dollars per house. And what? it was uh, the concept was by a company called 3D Printer plans.com uh, uh, it's on their website uh, $5,000 per house yeah they're now they're not what you and I would really call houses they're more like summer houses really but while they, it says while these houses appear to be small and simple in design the company claims anything is possible uh, Winston's chief executive said we can print buildings uh, to any digital design our customers bring to us it's fast and cheap so sorry to interrupt you there this would be obviously only the external um layer the the, the yeah it's the basic lay outline, the foundations and then print the, the walls and then you'd have to line the walls and put in the wind well not the windows obviously you can't print windows but you know you'd it'd be the external walls of the house yeah Pretty much. It says, at the moment, the, the Chinese structural regulations do not allow for multi-level 3D printing of buildings, but Winsun hopes to graduate to printing skyscrapers one day. Good God. I've, I've, well, actu- I've actually got uh, pictures, uh, or a picture, of the the house that they've done, and I'll put that up on the, on the website so everyone can have a look at that. I mean, the 3D printers are marvellous things. I think they're great, but they do have limited uses. Um, it interested me greatly when I first saw them, and uh, I uh, did a lot of research into them, um, not with the aim of buying one, but I wanted to see what they, you know, and they're enormously expensive for what they do at this stage, the cheaper ones, and they've started selling them at office works, believe it or not, which is one of our sort of, you can go there and buy pens and pencils and paper mm. and rubbers and rulers and, and bookshelves and desks and chairs and all that sort of stuff, and they, and printers and computers and monitors and all that sort of thing, um, whatever you'd need for an office environment. And they've started selling 3D printers. And I had a look at them, and they're the cheapest, nastiest 3D printers that you can find. And basically they only print to a certain height, and I think it's something ridiculous like four or five inches or something like that. It's it's not an enormous thing. So if you wanted to print something that was higher, this printer would be no good for you. But they're still $1,500 each. You'd probably be better off getting a MakerBot or something like that. These, again, are enormously expensive. Not for the home user, really, unless you had you know money to spend and you just wanted something to play with. That's fair enough. But for prototyping, if you were an engineer or an um, inventor fantastic idea i mean they're great if you wanted to produce something like um a cog or something like that for i don't know a clock or something spare parts yeah yeah that's right because there's a whole thing that's um for the makerbot system there's a, a website called thingiverse and when you go on there there's a whole bunch of pre-done stuff that people have designed. So it's all right if you're okay in CAD and you can design stuff in 3D, which I'm absolute rubbish at. I wouldn't even know one end of a 3D program from another, let's be honest. But if I was, 
you could design things and submit them or you could design your own thing. So if you break the, I don't know, the plastic clip that goes on your battery in your car, you know, the, the, there's two long screws either side of your battery and there's a plastic cover that goes over and you screw the wing nuts on and it holds the battery in place. If you snap that, you can go to Thingiverse and download the profile or the, the, the CAD design for that thing and stick it into your 3D printer and it will for whatever length of time and you'll have a replica of that thing which you just take outside, shove in there and screw it on, job done. Marvellous stuff. The thing is that I can see happening is people will buy these 3D printers, they need to buy a good one and offer a service whereby you can send them the thing that you broke and then they will scan it in in 3D, glue it back together or whatever, and scan it in in 3D, or if they can't glue it back together, they'll redesign it because they've got the specifications, they can measure it, and then print this thing out, send it back to you and charge you a fee for it. What a good idea, St. George. Yeah, I mean, the the amount of materials now that you uh, they are developing um, 3D printers for... I mean, they can even do it with food. I mean, I've seen 3D printers for, for chocolate and all kinds oh, of yes, stuff. Oh, yes, there was, wasn't there, that thing of chocolate? <laughs> yes. Amazing. I mean, that's, that's more showing off, really, though, isn't it? Yeah, but it could be developed for other things, I guess. Um, I mean, for people that are maybe making wedding cakes and all that kind of stuff. I think the scripting on top of them and the fancy little flourishes that they do, flowers and things like that, could be done like that but it would require different mediums uh, like uh, royal icing and all that sort of thing i mean that's that stuff's hard enough to shape as it is let alone pushing it through a tube and getting it to do its thing but maybe you know there, there's there's ways to do it heat it up cool it down you know if you've got little sprays that cool it down with liquid nitrogen or something like that this is something that is going to expand i can see a market for this I'm not saying there'll be one in every home by 2020, but there is definitely a market for this because the thing is that you've got two different media that you can use in these printers. As I understand it, I may be wrong, but you have PLA and then you have another one, which is another series of three letters, which I can't remember. One is biodegradable, so it's only meant for short-term sort of stuff. And the other one is is meant for longer-term stuff. And you can, in some of the printers, you can choose which type of... It's it's a bit like Strimacord, and, and you just feed it into the thing and it does its thing. But there's two different grades of plastic that have different longevity and, and you know, they're meant for different things. But again, we have to remember this is plastic. Yeah. And what are the tensile strengths and where's the breaking point and and is it as strong as the original part? So there's a lot of work to be done on it, but I think it's going in the right direction. I think in the film industry uh, it'll be used a lot as well because I was watching one of the um, behind-the-scenes on uh, bits on the DVD uh, about, I think, Star Wars, actually, and obviously they, they make moulds with resin in them and all kinds of things to make weaponry and things. Now they'll be just have to be able to do it on a 3D printer and it'll be done in, you know pretty much how they want it straight away yeah print it out sand it give it a lick of paint and where you go yeah it's yeah. revolutionary really yeah it's, it's 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 an interesting thing it's fascinating to watch what they can do with it and i mean the youtube has a plethora of information on it 
and um, as does Google. But you can watch things being printed, and there's some guy that's printed lampshades for his house and, and all this sort of stuff. Obviously, he's got a bigger one that, that, that will do this stuff. But how long will they last? It's, it's a very young thing. It's still in its infancy. We don't know what the long-term... You know, I mean, plastic doesn't last all that long anyway. If it's in full sunlight, it fades. And it, it, it uh, whereas rubber used to perish and crack, this plastic, you know, what, how long will it last? We'll see. And then someone will come up with a new thing. Oh, this is a new type of plastic you can put into there and this will last a thousand years. And then everyone will go, oh, but you're creating things that are going to last a thousand years. And the environmental people will get in on it and that'll be the end of it. I think Alan's left us. No, no, I'm still here. No, it's fascinating. It just brought to mind a couple of stories that uh, have been that I saw recently. Where the first one was a, a Chinese chap who was arrested for 3D printing a gun. Uh, that, but also, mm. while you were talking about car parts, um, the EU is currently putting through regulations which uh, would forbid anybody from adapting and modifying their car unless the parts came from the original manufacturer. So if you want to go and get spares, then they have to come from the original original manufacturer, which means that all this aftermarket, um, cheaper, no-name parts is, well, that's going to collapse in Europe. But also the... The modifications that people do, you know, sort of adding fins and wings and trim and stuff, um, we're going to see an end to that as well. But the 3D printing thing, that's going to be difficult if you can only say, I I have a Ford car, so any parts that I need would have to come from Ford. Now, if I go and 3D print something, put it on the car, and then when the car's sold, it's checked over and found not to have genuine parts on it, I would be in trouble. But surely that would be, I mean, as I said, that little cover that goes over to secure the battery in place, that's not a fatal thing. If, if you're driving along and your battery falls out, your car will just stop. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's not, I mean, I can understand if you're printing headrests or uh, safety things like uh, the clasps that go on seatbelts or that sort of thing. Well, you're an idiot if you're doing that anyway. Mm. But where does it stop and where does it start? I think that's what you're getting at, Alan. I mean, where, what, where, you know, who says where it, if it's, is it a safety feature? And knowing the car industry, they will say that, yes, the battery thing is a safety feature. So Yeah, every, everything would be everything. everything would there the would be no thing. aftermarket. That would wipe out the entire aftermarket thing of the car industry, really. Which is, which is massive. It's a huge industry. It's enormous. I, I looked at something the other day on a, a website called techchick or something.com.au or something like that. Cable Chick, that's right. <laughs> and it's an Australian website. And they were selling these um, gooseneck flexible iPad or laptop or whatever it is mounts that you can put in your car um, so you can kit your car out like a police cruiser, as the thing says. I mean, for goodness (laughs) sake, help us, please. But still, this thing is designed. It's got bits and pieces that you take the bolt out from your passenger seat and you slip it underneath and you put the bolt back in and it just... It holds your pad so you can have it on the passenger seat, you know. But what happens if you're in a crash and 
it's found that that piece was the bit that fa- – oh, you don't put the bolt back. I don't want to mess with the bolts in my passenger seat. I, Definitely I don't not. need an iPad mounted in my car, but people do. What happens insurance-wise if you have a crash and your passenger goes through the front window and it's found that you didn't put the bolt in properly or you stripped the thread and cross-threaded things? It, it, it's disastrous. And some of these aftermarket parts surely – can't be the price of them they can't be manufactured to the same quality as as the the things you know and they say oh you should always get things fitted by a proper i don't know any garage that would you could take your car to that you say can you put this gooseneck thing on the set i'm not doing that because you know i don't know what it's what it's made of it could be made of marmite you know, solidified marmite. Next time you have a crash, your passenger goes through the windscreen and your insurance company just does a Pontius Pilot and washes their hands of the whole thing and says, well, that's the end of you, laddie. Yeah, definitely. But it just seemed that uh, what you were saying about 3D printing, amazing technology, but, you know, I can, I can, it's it, it becoming more its and limits. more regulated. And like you say, it's got its limits, yeah. yeah. It's, it's got to. I mean, the beauty of this thing is you can print something that works. You can print something with a handle on it and a series of gears, and I still can't understand how they quite do this. They must have a drying period before they print the next gear on top of the other one because you'd think it would all sort of gel together. But you can print something with a handle, and you can just pull it out of the printer and wind the handle around, and a little thing whirls around at the end, and you've got a working machine. No wonder they're printing bloody guns with it. If, if you were a gun person, I would feel very... Um, apprehensive about loading a live cartridge into a 3D printed, uh, call it a replica, and and firing that because surely the replica isn't as robust as the, cause the original ones. Uh, guns are, as far as I know, they're made out of metal. Yeah, I mean no, the, the explosion. The, uh, cartridge it's got an incendiary device in the cartridge to propel the bullet out of the end surely that would put enormous stress on the the surroundings of the thing i mean you you'd end up with a face full of lead as they say yeah the uh, the designer of the first printed gun uh, cody wilson there's a video on there of him uh, firing this one shot plastic 3d printed gun and uh, he's very apprehensive before he fires, before he pulls the trigger of his own 3D printed gun. Ugh. But he does it, you know, but you can see the apprehension. The that, yeah, <laughs> you can see the apprehension on it while he's, while he's doing it. It's, uh, but, I, uh, like there's going to be a lot of injuries from people printing weapons like that, and printing guns is just, I mean, as, as with Britain and Australia, our gun laws are far superior, in my opinion, to certain other places in the world. Mm. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a very good thing. And if people are going to print their own guns and put live ammunition in them and fire them, there's going to be a certain amount of genocide, which will wipe out some of the problem, I think. <laughs> If you're stupid enough to print a 3D gun and fire it and it backfires and kills you, well, Darwin Award time. Darwin Award, I love that. (laughs) Laura LaRue here. Whenever I'm in the potosphere, there's only one place to be. 
the Garbage Pod. Hello there, Garbage Podophiles. Gareth Jones from Gareth Jones on Speed here. My name is Dr. Ryan Kobrick, and I'm the Executive Director of the Yuri's Night Global Executive Team. Rock the Podosphere and rock the planet. My name is Kate Arkless Gray, but many people know me as Space Kate. Hey, Mark. Uh, welcome to NASA Edge. Yeah, it's good to be on the Garbage Pod. This is, is the Garbage Scottish Village gets a sister city on Mars. Many cities and towns around the world have a link to another city or town far away for friendship and cultural exchanges. The village of Glenelg in the western coast of Scotland has announced it will twin with another place with the same name, Glenelg Mars is the designated name of the spot where the Mars Curiosity rover is headed toward. Officials in Glenelg, the Scottish one, held an official twinning ceremony on October 20th. It was a smashing success, and pictures are posted at the Glenelg and Ansdale community portal. Although there were no Martian natives at the ceremony, American astronaut Bonnie Dunbar did attend. Now... Usually these twinning things are, are down to um, similar population and similarities between the two towns or villages or whatever. Um, it doesn't make me want to go to this place. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sounds a bit bleak, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> On Mars. Yes. It's... Uh, I t- they, they, they'll have clearer space to hunt the haggises that are running around, I suppose. But That's right, yeah. Yes. It's, the, it's the right-hand uh, pair of legs that uh, that are shorter so they can run around yes. the tops of mountains without falling down. That's uh, the one. I always, I always prefer to hunt the, the, the shorter right-handed legs. They're, they're just easier than the left-handed ones, I suppose. It's just a little quirk of mine, I don't know. Well, fair enough, too. Mm. Why not? Mm. The talking of Mars, it, it takes me back to when I used to work for um, a packaging company, and one of our um, customers were the people who make Mars bars. And uh, we had an internal message come in from the uh, management saying, um, please dress up smartly tomorrow because we are having visitors from Mars. <laughs> you know, it's. Not every day you get a, a, an internal me- internal message saying that you're, you're having these visitors coming from a you know another planet. <laughs> it's uh, do they know something that we don't? <laughs> and were they green? Um, one of them was a little bit ill. Yeah. Uh, ah, but... well, that's okay then. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I used to it's love it. Love visitors it. from Mars. Marvellous. I used to love it when the, the guys used to come over from Mars because they always used to bring sample bags of um, some of their stuff. So you had like Starburst and Skittles and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Oh, okay. Because Mars is the confectionery company, isn't it? It's not called anything else. It's Mars. Um, so it, it, I, I, to, to say visitors from Mars is quite <laughs> true and correct. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> It's all fun and games, isn't it? (laughs) On a completely different note, the Germans are known for their uh, efficiency and organisation. Well, Mm. an unnamed German man retired at age 65 when his civil service position was eliminated. 
In an email addressed to his colleagues in the city of Menden, he boasted that he had done no actual work since 1998. <laughs> However, in that time, he'd gone to his office and collected €745,000, which is about $980,000, in pay from the municipal state surveyor's office. He blamed the waste on authorities who hired another surveyor to do the same job, leaving him with nothing to do. The man had been in the jo same job since 1974. Mayor Volker Flage, who was upset when he received the email and said the employee had never once complained before now. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's great. Sounds about right for your average council, really. Yeah. They don't well, have, haven't done anything for years. <laughs> do you know what's happening around here with councils? Sorry to butt in. But... Uh, we have the council workers that, you know, dig up the roads, the Department of Main Roads and that sort of thing, and they, they're doing a lot of work in Barara at the moment. Um, they're curbing and guttering certain sections of the place that aren't curbed and gutted. And it seems to be that all the, you know, the stop-go people, mm. do you call them something different, the the lollipop, well, that's... The stop-go people that hold the sign up that says slow, that you know, reflects their intellect. Um, <laughs> they, they, it's all women, young girls. And I can't understand why any girls would want that particular job. They'd surely want to work in a sports girl or a Katie's or a something shop, a fashion thing or something. But there's a lot, the vast majority of these stop-go people are young girls. And I cannot work it out. I feel like pulling over sometimes and saying, listen, why do you do, but I think I'll get, well, he was just coming over for a little bit of work and I thought I'd do this for you. You know, <laughs> I, I kid you not, they're still here. We've got the Irish labourers. Oh, there was a fellow walked in, a massive bloke, massive bloke. He had arms like tree trunks. And he walked into this shop that I do business with. You know, I do their computers and bits and pieces. And he's walked in and he's loomed in the doorway and the doorway darkened as he did it. And he's walked in and they've gone, oh, my God. And he said, would you be having a packet of tally hose or something like that that I can roll a cigarette in? And they, <laughs> and they all fell about laughing. They got, but, you know, because they've put the sewers on in certain parts. I know that makes us sound terribly backwards, but there's a place on the water here. It's a river suburb, and they haven't had the sewer. They've had the septic tank. But they did. the Irish labourers did a lot of that work, and they brought them over. I mean, I thought it was only Britain that had the Irish labourers. No, it's still alive here. And, and a lot of these girls, I must say, that are doing the road work have red hair. Oh, yeah, cool. sounds about right. Mm -hmm. it, what you're saying there reminds me of one of my mum's um, friends um, is Irish, and... <laughs> She was going on about the fact that she'd had the tree surgeon over to um, deal with a problem that she had, and uh, <laughs> she kept going on about these tree fellas. And um, I was in hysterics, and she couldn't understand why, you know, with, oh. these, with these, <laughs> these tree fellas. And uh, <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing. These tree fellas, they come over, they did a grand job. I couldn't fault it at all. It was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, isn't that amazing? Wow. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, from from tree fellas to drunk people, I've just I've there's a news article that says that a drunk woman caught having sex, yes, sex in a car park tries to wear a cheeseburger as a shoe. <laughs> 
A woman Yes, yes, you heard correctly. I can only imagine the carnage that resulted there from. A woman who was arrested after she was caught having sex in the car park was so drunk that she tried to wear a cheeseburger on her foot as a sandal. Rachel Gossett and Frank Lucas were having sex in the car park. I don't know why we need their names. But anyway, of a Waffle House in Georgia when Loganville authorities arrested them. So she obviously couldn't tell the difference between her shoe and a cheeseburger. I've never been that drunk. I don't know about you guys, but there's a lot of people that say, oh, yeah, well, when you're drunk, you do a lot of stuff you don't remember and you pass out and you can sleep on a fence. I've never been that drunk. (laughs) I really don't want to get that. And as you get older as you both will attest to, the the idea of becoming so paralytic that you can't walk properly just doesn't, because we know what's coming the next day. Oh. And when we were 18, we didn't care, but now we do. Yeah, because it hurts a lot more now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I may have um, expelled a cheeseburger onto my feet um, uh, under the influence of alcohol many years ago, but I certainly haven't tried to put one on as a shoe. That actually reminds me of something. The less I... said about that, the better, really. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I was going to ask questions, but I quickly decided not to. <laughs> <laughs> Probably my, best. Yes. Reminds me of something, so, especially some, if it was whole. Uh, something I saw where, uh, once when <laughs> when I was younger and um, participating in a few um, fermented vegetable products the, a guy in in front of me was trying to decide he was drunk trying to decide um, he didn't have enough money to get uh, a taxi home or he could have one he could do that or he could have a kebab but he couldn't work out which he was going to do and then he decided oh i've got my card in my pocket i can get some more cash out and i'll be fine so he went to the cash point, and it was in the days when you used to have the, the plastic screen that used to come down after each transaction yeah. uh, on the cash machine. And um, he's put. I've he, forgotten about that. <laughs> he uh, he bought a kebab. He'd taken it to the cash point. He'd put it on the side. <laughs> he'd put his card in. He's trying to put the numbers in. Being drunk, can't remember what his number is, and he's done it wrong three times, and it's locked him out. Now. The plastic screen has now gone down, taken his card in. The kebab's still inside the behind the plastic screen. Um, so he couldn't get a taxi, didn't have a kebab, and can't get any more money. Oh, poor, poor man. And you can, oh, so so the the screen was that proud of the screen yeah. that, that, that there was actually room for a kebab in between the two. Yeah. I, I thought they were right in front of the screen. I didn't understand that they were, what, what four or five inches proud of the screen yeah, before you... Yeah. And, so he lost his kebab and his And, and you, you could see the, the, the glass or the perspex steaming up ah! because of this kebab behind it. <laughs> and he, he, he kept saying to people... um. Um, you, you're using a machine. Can you can can you get my kebab out? <laughs> <laughs> I pity the poor tub that had to clean the machine afterwards with all the juice running. Imagine the oil running. Down. It's like, <laughs> funnily enough, I've just been on the website and 
uh, for funny stories, and I've I've seen your article, Alan, about the 34-year-old woman passed herself off oh, yes. as a 15-year-old. She's now 34. You said 31. It's going up. So if we check right. next week, she might be 45. Oh, right, okay. But, um, <laughs> the website that I look at occasionally for amusing articles is called FARC.com, and I mean F-A-R-K for all our Christian listeners. Well pronounced. <laughs> yes. FARC.com. And there's quite a lot of things. And I found that, that thing. She passed herself off as a 15-year-old sophomore to attend an East Texas high school, and it wasn't a high school for the blind. So that brings me back to my original point. <laughs> I've got some breaking news uh, about uh, about space stuff. Hey, up, spacey type stuff uh, from Moscow. This was issued at one uh, twenty-seven p.m. Uh, their time, and uh, today, May sixteenth, and uh, a Russian rocket carrying its most advanced communications satellite to date fell back to Earth minutes after liftoff on Friday uh, in the latest blow to the country's once proud space industry. Space officials said the Proton's control engine failed 545 seconds after its nighttime blast-off from the Baikonur Space Center Moscow liters in Kazakhstan. State television showed the carrier and its Express AM4P satellite reported to be worth $29 million, burning up in the upper layers of the atmosphere above China. Now, nice. Oh dear. Now they they make the Chinese they, captured the debris and recycled it. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> they they make a big thing about saying that it was, you know, a once respectable uh uh concern. Um it doesn't happen very often, but when it does, they make such a big thing out of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they were featured as the other superpower. I mean, it was the Americans and the Russians were the space cadets, if you like. It's pretty much been blasted wide open now because you know the Chinese are on on board now, and uh, India have got a very good uh, uh, space program now as well. So, okay. um, yeah, see, so you follow this more than I do. I wouldn't know. It was America and Russia when I was a boy, you know, and and they were the two sort of space superpowers yeah like. the, the space race was pretty much based on, yeah. on those now you've got corporates involved and it's it's kicking off a, a new space race to, to see who's going to succeed the, the the government funded programs mainly american ones obviously but there are other concerns i mean we have a couple in the uk i mean we have the yuxa which is the UK Space Agency. And uh, there's an, a smaller concern called Star Chaser, which was a, uh, a company that started off in someone's garage. <laughs> and, As did Microsoft, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. And I like uh, space. I like that better than Yuxa. <laughs> the person that was in charge of the, uh, the naming conventions really ought to be um, hauled over the coals on that one. Well, the, the original, I don't know why they changed it. it. It used to be the BSA, the British Space Agency. Why they had to change it to the UK Space Agency and spend a lot of money on the graphics and everything else that went along with it, I have no well, idea. You know why they had to change it from British to UK? They could have found something a little better, I think. Yeah, normally in these things they come up with an idea to 
make a competition for somebody to rename it but then you do get some weird and wonderful names for radio stations and things like that because of competitions they Um, did that here recently they wanted uh, there was a new Vegemite that they made and I think it was they had it had cheese in it or something cheese and Vegemite or something it didn't last for very long Um, blimey probably would have done well in America but you know what they like with cheese but I and they and they 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 had this um, Vegemite. I think it was called Vegemite or something. My two point zero, oh. and that took off for a <laughs> while. And there were jars of it on the shelves. Something whatever it was, two point zero, and then everyone sort of thought you're an idiot, and it all went backward. And now it's off, and I think it's called Cheesy Mite now. But it was it did. They had a competition that people could write in and name the things, and you know I. I think I, I think I might have even entered it and put spread you might or something. It was easily spreadable, something like that. I don't know what it was, but yes, it was something might two point zero. I can't remember the the thing. I should probably look it up before I speak. I but um, I yeah, it was it was. There's it, always a competition to to rename products, isn't there? I can't mm. believe it's not Vegemite. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I can't believe it's not Vegemite. You'd know if it was Vegemite. Oh. But um, I'll, I'll look that up quickly on the side if yeah, you the, continue. The local radio station, um, it used to be owned by a, a Canadian company called uh, Jack FM. And um, the people that ran it locally weren't happy with the... the the mother company, if you like, and um, decided to become independent from them, and they, they wanted the people to come up with a name for the radio station. And the name that they came up with was Bob. Bob. <laughs> Bob. That's not a name. That's a career. Bob <laughs> FM. Bob FM. Bob FM. <laughs> You're listening to Bob FM. Yes, I. Yes, it's be all right Was for people. Was this following along with the satellite channel called Dave? <laughs> yes, you're listening to Bob on it. Bob FM, rebroadcasted by Dave. You, it'd be all right if you're in the sea, bobbing around. You the the thing, the thing I love about Dave is that uh, when they I'm were sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't let you do that. They, they were showing, Dave. they were showing the. Um, well, and does it better than I do. Back-to-back episodes of uh, Red Dwarf because of the, the new episodes that were coming out. And mm. they actually renamed the channel for 24 hours, Dave Lister. Ah, <laughs> 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 really? Yeah. Daisy, give me My mind's going, Dave. You need the breathing, too. You need the... He does, he does that well. I've got to hand it to you. You do it far better than I do. <laughs> it's a That's great it's, film. It's a great it's, film. Oh, it's, it's a long time ago, isn't it? Open mm. the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't. Well, I shouldn't be doing it. I shouldn't be doing it. I'm I've just found out the, the, the Vegemite thing was called iSnack 2.0. iSnack. iSnack. And it was on the shelf, oh. and everybody went mental and went, oh, I've got to buy that, and they've got jars of this stuff just sitting there. Nobody's ever opened it, because God knows what's in it. Now, the iSnack 2.0 was chosen uh, from more than 48,000 suggestions collected from a public competition, and uh, it was n- announced during the AFL Grand Final on Saturday 
um, uh, on a Saturday attracted an unprecedented out, an unprecedented outpouring of derision from Australians. I snack 2.0. It's since gone. It, it has been removed from the shelves, but a lot of people grabbed it. Just uh, they'll never open it, as I said. Oh no, limited edition. Have it there. That's what it was. You fools. You know. <laughs> Uh, for the, the, everything that you could think of during the Queen's Jubilee year had something to do with the Union Jack and the Queen and everything else. Even Marmite got on the act by adding another A and taking out oh, the R. Oh, Marmite. That's all right. Quite clever, really. Marmite. Yes, my husband and I love our Marmite. <laughs> My servants all say mom. <laughs> this is the BBC World Service. Marmite is now on sale. Yes. <laughs> that was very good, because that's exactly how the World Service sounds. <laughs> I, have a, I have a big, enormous um, uh, uh, Dortmunder um, uh, uh, Stein here in the studio. It's for sound effects. And I just put it over the microphone and I say... This is the BBC World Service. And that's what they do. They walk in. Hello, Kevin. How are you? How was your weekend? Was it all right? Yes, it was fine, thanks. Yes, I thought so. You know, I'm sure that's how it works. That's brilliant. Uh, stole that. Reproduced it. Don't care. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Plagiarised with no shade. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. An 85 year old retired music teacher from Croatia has proved that he has almost as many lives as a cat after cheating death seven times. Um, his first meeting with the Grim Reaper was in 1962 when the train he was travelling in derailed and plummeted into a, uh, an icy cold river. Um, 17 people perished while Mr. Selak uh, struggled to the bank with hypervermia, a broken arm and a collection of bruises. A year later, arguably his most bizarre escape uh, uh, occurred on his first and only plane flight. When both engines failed, the aircraft plummeted to the ground most of the passengers facing certain death, but not so for Mr. Selak. The faulty cabin door flew open, sucking him out of the plane and sending him falling to the crowd, ground where he landed in a, in a haystack. Oh, for goodness sake. In the fo- following decades, he supp- survived a bus crash, two exploding cars and a bus hitting him. Um <laughs> His final death-defying incident was in 1996 when Mr. Selleck drove off a mountain road and was ejected from the car and managed to cling to a tree where he watched the car plummet 300 feet. Uh, in 2003, however, he won £600,000 on the lottery and bought himself a private island. 
Oh, probably best. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether I'd want to be around him so that I could survive these things or avoid him so that I'm never in the situation with him. I certainly wouldn't want to travel with him. <laughs> no, probably not, to be honest, actually. Thinking not the about best travelling person, yeah. <laughs> Blimey. North Korean officials paid a visit to a London hair salon to question why it had used their leader, Kim Jong-un's picture, in a poster offering haircuts. The poster, oh, yes, I read about this one. The, the poster in M&M Hair Academy in South Ealing featured the words, having a bad hair day, below the leader's picture. Oh, <laughs> yes, that wouldn't have gone down well in the old Korea camp. The, the barber, Karim Nabash, uh, said... Embassy officials were shown the door, and the salon. Oh, good good the, British lad, then. <laughs> the salon's manager spoke to the police. The Met police said, "We've spoken to all parties involved, and no offence has been disclosed." The salon put up the poster on April the ninth, and the next day, two men claiming to be officials from the North Korean embassy visited the salon and demanded to meet the manager. Yeah. The manager said, we put up the posters for an offer for men's haircuts through the month of April. Obviously, in current news, there had been this story that North Korean men were only allowed one haircut, which was the same as their beloved leader. Uh, We didn't realise, but the North Korean embassy is a 10-minute walk from the salon. Um, The next day, we had the North Korean officials pop up into the salon, asking us to take down the posters, to which the manager replied, hey... This isn't North Korea. This is England. We live in a democracy, so I'm afraid you're going to have to get out of my salon. (laughs) Good on him. The manager later informed the police about the visit by the North Koreans, and he was told the embassy had also contacted the officers. We haven't had any trouble since then. If anything, the poster has become a tourist attraction. (laughs) I bet it has. A great bit of advertising. There, yeah. I've actually got um, a picture of the poster as well, so I'll put that up on on the show notes. Brilliant. Not 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 a, a Ralph Lauren or a Givenchy or anything like that, is it? I mean, seriously, you know, it's that's, it's, that's... it's it's not the it's not the most um, cutting edge hair style of the the year, is it? No, it's, oh, it's, it's nicely it's, done, sir. Nicely yeah, done. Definitely cutting edge. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't oh, think about. Oh, yeah. Sorry oh, about dear. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, I, I didn't want to split hairs or well, anything where, like that. Oh. <laughs> where's my drum sound effects? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, rimshot dot. Is it rimshot dot com or something? It goes and you press the button on there. Fun stuff. It's, it's, it's definitely a place a bowl on your head and cut round it kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a, a, another three uh, D printer story. Oh, right. A duck that was born in a high school biology classroom uh, in the autumn of twenty twelve at birth. His left foot faced backwards, making walking an understandably difficult endeavour. He re- received rehabilitation in order to correct the deformity, but wasn't able to be fully corrected. Um, walking caused Buttercup. What a name for a duck, Buttercup. A buttercup. Great... <laughs> <laughs> I guess Daffy was already taken. <laughs> a great deal of pain, and uh, he was given to the non-profit agency Feathered Angels Waterfowl Sanctuary in Arlington, Tennessee. The staff at Feathered Angels were concerned about the foot um, as it would 
leave Buttercup more vulnerable to cuts and infections. So when he when he was three months old, his left foot was amputated. Um, oh no! Oh, this has turned tragic. But the um, but you see the thing is, if they, they were thinking of making a, a false uh, leg for him, but uh, it would need to be f- flexible. Uh, and while three D printers typically don't work with flexible materials, it could be used to make a mold. The Tennessee-based three D printing company called Nova Copy donated resources to make the mould using the left foot of Buttercup's sister as a guide. Um, the mould allowed them to make an actual false leg made out of um, silicon. Um, Buttercup finally received his replacement limb and he's doing quite well with it. Hello? Hello? <laughs> it wasn't me. I'm oh, not sorry. <laughs> Um, Hello. Anyway, what did uh, sound like the Skype girl? (laughs) Hello. Thank you for calling Skype. She's still going. We've got gremlins. Yeah, we've got a little bit. Tell us about the duck. Well, I have. I've actually got uh, a piece of video which I'm going to put on the show notes of of Buttercup just playing accidentally. No, I haven't actually. Uh, Buttercup. (laughs) Was that uh, Alan? Sorry. Right. Yes, it was was me on another. It was me on another device. I do apologise. So you'll be able to see how how Buttercup is uh, getting on with his new leg. (laughs) Oh, bless him. With a new silicon leg made from a mould by a print, I can understand that. I was going to say, hopefully they didn't print a, a a leg for him out of plastic. That would have been terribly difficult to walk on for a duck. Well, I've actually been able to make um, prosthetic uh, limbs for humans uh, with a three D printers. Uh, it's it's actually uh, yes, but ours are stiff. Ducks ones need to the feet particularly need to be flexible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are actually just the different joints that they've. They, you have to assemble the different joints, but it's very lightweight, and um, uh, something like a third of the cost of the old-fashioned type that you you get these days. So, uh, another another good use for three D printing. <laughs> very good duck feet. Very good. We like the three D printers. A missing woman on holiday in Iceland managing managed to unwittingly join a search party looking for herself. Oh, hang on, in the shop? No, not Iceland, the shop, in the country. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, I thought she'd, thought she'd been, you know, sort of struck down in cold repose with two fish fingers up her nose in the, in the, the frozen section or something. Sorry, go on, please. <laughs> the, the, the Toronto Sun reports that a tourist group travelling by bus to the volcanic, oh, here we go, Elja Canyon, and made a pit stop at services near the Canyon Park. The woman yes, in- that's it. They spent an enormous amount of time naming that. <laughs> the woman in question went inside uh, the services to freshen up and change her clothes, and when she came back, her busmates didn't recognise her. Uh, what? Word spread amongst the group of a missing passenger, and the woman didn't recognise the description of herself. The next thing you know, there's a 50-person search party, was canvassing the area, and the Coast Guard was called in and was mobilising to deploy a search party of its own. About 3am, some genius in the group finally figured out that the missing person was actually in the search party, albeit with different clothes, and the search was called off. Oh, God. (laughs) How long did they spend again? It was about eight hours. Oh! <laughs> no. 
and they didn't realise she was there and looking for herself because she didn't recognise her own description. Oh, FFS, as they say. (laughs) Ah, good grief. (laughs) It just beggars belief. Anyway, fair enough. (laughs) These things happen, I guess. I just thought she got lost in Iceland. I've heard that it's a big place. Yeah, some of them are. <laughs> there you go. 15,000 square feet, I believe, some of them. But uh... <laughs> Eight hours. Oh, wouldn't you feel a fool? I mean, what did she do to herself That's to make herself sense. look... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, she cut her hair off and dyed it in the... Oh, sorry, I was, I was dyeing my hair in the bathroom and I came back out. I was a brunette, but now I'm blonde and I didn't realise that I was missing. Oh, for goodness sake. Yeah, that's that's tragic. That is just insane, isn't it? I've said it before and I'll say it again. These notes as queer as folk. (laughs) Who said that? Who was it that said that? Um, Somebody like Oscar Wilde or... Gosh, hasn't it gone quiet? There's loads of stuff. It's funny, three of us looking and and coming up with now. As queer as folk, yeah. Okay, let's just try this again. Who said... There's now as queer as folk. And it comes back to the Cambridge Dictionary and it still doesn't tell me. Where does it originate? Was it in To Kill a Mockingbird? Oh, no, it wasn't. It is normally seen in the phrase, there's now as queer as folk, in brackets, to be said in a good Northern English accent. <laughs> it shall have delivered. So we've got that much. No, I just give up on uh, this. Yeah, it's, it's just silly. It's just starting to get ridiculous. You know, we're going into stupid thing. What is the last song on Queer as Folk season? So it's it's now become a TV series, obviously. So yeah. we're yep. screwed. We'll never find out what it is now. No. Anyway, we're never going to find no. out. It's something for the next episode. You can find Look that out up. and report it in the next episode. <laughs> yeah, okay. Because we've got to know. People will not sleep until they know. So this is for the next episode of The Garbage Pod. I think it's nearly that time again uh, before we disappear into cyberspace. And um, what you're going to get us to sing a song or something? <laughs> are you? No, I'd, I'd just like to thank you both for joining me this morning, this evening, this afternoon, uh, <laughs> uh, wow. whatever time of day it is now. And um, I hope you enjoyed yourself, gents. I did. Yes. I had a marvelous time. It's it's twenty past ten here at night now, and it's almost time for bed. But um, yeah, it's, it's been good. I did better than I thought I would. And yes, I know, Mark, you say, I know you did better than you did. But I, I still didn't think I was very prepared, but I can talk for Australia, so, you know, we, we did well. Excellent. You've all done very well. Yeah, I've had a great time, thank you. And, and just looking through some of those weird and wonderful stories is always a fun pleasure, never a chore. I agree. Makes your mind boggle, but still. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of The Garbage Pod. Visit www.thegarbagepod.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode of The Garbage Pod or TGP Extra. Just look for the podcast section in the menu. While you're on the website, why not have a nose about? You can find a little bit more about me and the rest of the crew and find out what's going on in the podosphere by reading the blog and much, much more. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because your input is our output. 
or you can use the social media icons at the top of the website which include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to the show you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. You can also listen to rebroadcasts of the show on the 1800 Online Network at www.1800online.weebly.com If you look on the right hand side of the podcast page, the blog or the video vault, you'll see a little button there that says donate. If you like what we do and you feel that you could give us a little something just to help us out a bit, we'd be most appreciative. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Thanks for listening and I'll speak to you again soon. Take care. The Garbage Pod is a Spamhead production.